Welcome to Politics in the North, where a couple of recovering policy wonks get together to discuss politics. Hello and welcome to Politics in the North. Today we are joined again by Rebecca, Eddie, Bushra, Atul, and Alex. Hey. Hello. Hi everyone. So today's focus will be on the economy and what reopening actually may or may not entail. Conversations are happening left, right, and center, south of the border. Many governors are being pushed to open things up a bit quicker than they would necessarily like. Likewise, up in Canada, we've been starting to see a few protests pop up here and there uh, regarding the social distancing measures. To start off on a lighter note, I'm going to ask you all, what is the first thing that you'll do when the quote-unquote reopening happens? Get all of you in person. <laughs> I think that's the big one for me. I miss uh, I miss just seeing friends. Uh, Zoom just isn't the same. Agreed. Yeah, I think that was a really nice one to say. I think the first thing I'm going to do is find a good bowl of noodle soup somewhere and get that for myself. Um, that's what I've missed, some pho or ramen. So that's the first thing I'm going to do. Classic bushra with the soup. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to say, I don't think that my preferred the thing I'm most excited about is going to happen in any of the initial phases. So this is a long ways off, but I'm really keen to go back to the gym. Like I, I love that, but I think that's going to be a while. So I'm in the same boat as Alex with just seeing friends in person, even if it's just one or two friends at a time or however we choose to do it from a phased approach will be awesome. Uh, so I'm a hugger. I'm going to hug all my friends. I'm calling you out, uh, Eddie, uh, uh, Chris, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> And yeah, I think the gym is a big one for me too. I'm looking forward to getting back there. What if all the social uh, norms change though, Atul? <laughs> what if hugging, what if hugging's not a thing anymore? Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the few first few things I'll do is like run, run to my closest shawarma shop to get myself a shawarma. And then also if the haircut barbershop is open, I'll get myself a haircut and then visit every friend and family. And even though you're not blood relative, I will visit you like as if I'm an estranged member uh, and we shall catch up because I think it's just the human connection, um, the stories and just enjoying either good beer or a good meal together. I think for me, I'd be remiss if I didn't say my wedding. That was the biggest thing that got postponed because of the, the COVID situation for me. So for sure, looking forward to that uh, in the next year. So we know that lives have been disrupted and now leaders of the world are trying to figure out what exactly will it take to get things going again. And I, I think... The reality is you have two people kind of in two camps. One, world is just going to be exactly the same as it was. Another, the world's going to be completely different. We're, we're going to see like the end of the world as we know it. And I'm curious to kind of see where all of our takes kind of go on that spectrum. So I will let Eddie start off with his take on this. I think it will have to happen gradually. I think in terms of business, we're beginning to see it in Europe where they're allowing people to, I think, Hair salons and barbershops are one of the first things that are opening up, but then I think it will be a gradual, it wouldn't be status quo. You will have social distancing happening on the streetcars, trams, the subways. However, I do think that most businesses aren't going to 
force everyone to go back straight away. I think there's going to be some form of some people staying back and them doing it gradually, allowing people to come in, work in gradually, not having a full office full of people, but some people maybe work one week, another set of people work another week. And I'm missing that will be the new normal. I'm missing also masks to some extent in public will be a new form of normal. I think this will happen until we have some kind of permanent solution. And similar to anything that we have faced in the years before, there is a little bit of a shock. There's a little bit of uh, fear getting back into society. But then once society starts moving again, once we have a vaccine, things go back to normal. And then we all forget about this whole kind of scenario. But in the interim and in the short term, I think it's going to be a very gradual lifting of types of businesses and types of contact that we will have. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And just adding to that, I think there are a lot of businesses that even if they were open, people wouldn't necessarily want to go to them. For example, I I doubt very much that even if you had clubs open up after this was all over, which frankly isn't going to happen, I don't know that you'd find people willing to get in that close proximity with others for the most part. I think for a lot of businesses, they might be sort of half capacity. So a restaurant, for example, might continue to do takeout, but at the same time, they might open up to say a dozen, two dozen people at a time, depending on how big they are. Stores might just limit the number of people there are in them at a time, which is something that we've seen throughout COVID with larger stores that could extend to smaller ones now too, maybe. And I think beyond that, we're going to start seeing some interesting, I I hesitate to use the word experiment, but to some extent, some experiments uh, by governments about what happens when you open the economy, to what extent, which businesses you allow to open first, which come afterward. And I think we'll see some partial reopenings and then probably some partial closings again until we figure out exactly how to get it right or until some vaccine is devised. I think we know that based on what we're seeing happen in Europe and some parts of Asia, we know that there is a balance that's happening, right? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a, the moral imperative is on, well, how many people can we afford to die and suffer? But at the same time, there is a calculation that has to be made around the longer we close the economy, there's going to be long-term effects on people's lives and mental health and sort of their well-being and their savings. And this is something that can go on for, for years to come. And we know that this opening up is going to be gradual. I mean, I think Air Canada came out with a statement yesterday saying that they expect by December there to be a surge in global air travel. And, you know, how true this is, is yet to be seen. For me, though, the, the main worry is what happens to all those businesses that have had to close permanently now that this has already happened? I think the worry here is we've already been having issues around monopolies and businesses that are well capitalized and them having an overarching market share. But what happens to those small and medium-sized businesses who have had to close permanently and, and need a surviving hand once this is all done? We've seen this before with tech a little bit too, a huge consolidation toward much larger players. And I question whether with a lot of smaller companies going out of business now, whether we won't see a consolidation. And that might be less obvious in shops and a downtown street, for example, which is much different. But in terms of startup companies or even something like Zoom, which is what we're using now, might that be taken up by someone like Facebook just because of the amount of demand which is being placed on it? A negative outcome of this could be further consolidation by already large actors. 
just to build on that point, that's one area where I have kind of been impressed with Canada's response to the COVID crisis. Not to say that our federal government has done a perfect job by any means, but in terms of getting money out the door as quickly as possible to individuals and businesses, that's really the most important thing that you can do in a crisis like of this nature, right? It is a pandemic. It is not something like the financial crash of 2008, right? It's very different. It's kind of like if we the extent to which you can just press freeze on the economy will really help with the recovery once this pandemic is over. So providing supports to individuals who are laid off, providing subsidies to businesses so they can keep people on their payroll. Now they're starting to explore how can we provide funding to help those small businesses pay their rent if they don't have any income coming in. I am impressed that they kind of said at with the, in a pandemic environment, the most important thing we can do is get money out the door to individuals and small businesses as quickly as possible. It hasn't been without its shortcomings, but it was the right decision. I definitely agree with Rebecca. I think we need those social and economic supports, especially for marginalized populations. And when I look at the narrative of the economy being closed, I also question which parts of the economy. So there are still a lot of people who are out there working in essential work and things that we didn't necessarily acknowledge as being essential before this pandemic at a wide scale, but also talking about the gendered nature of the work that's being done and how much of the care work that is being performed by women was being undervalued and still is being undervalued in many respects. So I think we need to look at that as we look to quote unquote re opening the economy of how we actually make that transition a just one and move towards a more equitable economic and social system. 100%. I think the one thing that I found lacking with a lot of the commentary that you're seeing regarding reopening the economy is a lack of nuance and understanding regarding the psychological component. The economy isn't something, it isn't a light switch, it isn't a computer, you can't just boot it back up and expect it to be going on hunkadori and just be the what it was before. I'm wondering what steps can be taken to alleviate that anxiety and uncertainty that people are feeling because that uncertainty isn't going to be going away just because I can go to the restaurant. I'm still going to be wondering, will I have a job six months from now? Will I have a job a year from now? These are questions that will continue to persist. So what can be done to, to help rectify this? And Chris, this is where I really think the importance of having that digital infrastructure and data analytics will be so important to the recovery. So right now, many, many Canadians, individuals and businesses have been impacted by COVID-19. We're just indiscriminately getting money out the door to everybody. The barrier to entry for the CERB is very, very low. But once we do start going back to work and the group of people who are reliant on that support gets smaller and smaller, it's going to be increasingly important to do that sensing of which industries and businesses are the hardest hit, which ones are still struggling. To Bushra's point, which individuals and groups are hardest hit? Which ones are really vulnerable? Like the homeless population, the indigenous population, visible minority groups, right? And how can we target supports to those groups to help them to reintegrate into the economy successfully post-COVID? So my recommendation is we need to be leveraging real-time data about who is vulnerable and hardest hit, and we need to be designing precision policies and supports for those groups 
groups and implementing them quickly and then monitoring the effectiveness of them and refining them as required. That's what I want to have happen, but I'm a little bit skeptic of the government's capacity and technology capability to execute on something so precise like that. I'm hopeful, like I really want that to be the case, but I'm a little uh, skeptical. When we talk about the data that is being used, something that is particularly concerning for me in the Canadian context is the lack of data that's collected on the racial inequities that we're seeing being amplified by this pandemic. And so we need to think about how we're systematically also collecting that data um, and making it available for policy and decision makers in the aftermath. And then think about the existing factors that were leading to people being more vulnerable in the first place. Um, And that includes some of the pollution, the climate risks that were also contributing to health inequities as well in different communities that are being especially hard hit and that are becoming immunocompromised as a result of these factors. It's not an accident. And I think we need to also acknowledge that in the policies that we implement moving forward. Yeah, I think that's a great point in terms of it, because a lot of the experiences that you're seeing take place in the current environment weren't as high profile as they are now. Like case in point, I think the most recent figure, 15% of mortgage holders in Canada have had their mortgages deferred. And we've only been through this for two months now. If 15% of the population already needs additional support for that, it's showing that a lot of the existing roles, jobs, and economic systems that we have in place may or may not be as sustainable and as resilient as we thought they were. Uh, and and just, just to build on what all of you have talked about. So we know it's a step-by-step and based on everything I've heard so far, we see that there's a few prongs to this, right? The first one is identification, identifying which parts of the economy, which workers are most vulnerable, identifying which or coming up with strategies around how to get the economy mobilizing again. Despite the step-by-step nature of this process, I, I wanted to build on something that you know, I think Bushra mentioned before about the role of women in the economy. And I think another thing that's also come up uh, in terms of not just equity amongst individuals, but even in terms of corporations is, and this has come to the fore recently, is the talk about Canadian companies that have been registered offshore. Do they sort of deserve the money that is coming from the government? And so you have all these questions that have that are arising about, you know, equality and equity and what's fair and unfair. And some of these questions were kind of like parsed over or you know, put under the rug a little bit before the stressor hit. And now that the stressor hit and you have people who are suffering on a day-to-day basis, the value of the amount being dispersed all of a sudden becomes prominent. Who is truly going to be helped? And I think some of these questions are are going to be attacked really hard, especially around tax havens and uh, offshore registering. And another thing I also wanted to note based on what Bushra said is, I think I saw a study that said that in India, in, in Delhi alone or something like that, just the fact that the skies are clear and the air that's being that people are breathing is more pure. They say that they save around 15,000 lives already, just lack of pollution itself. My mom went for a 10K a few days ago and she ha- I had a call with her and she's over in Kampala. And she was saying that, you know, there wasn't any traffic, not a lot of hustle and bustle. It was very fresh, very clean, reminded her of an, a much earlier time. Another key area that I think we've been trying to go back and forth on, is, especially the issue of climate change, do we actually need all these vehicles on the road most of the time as well? Can we actually transport ourselves from one place to the next with as minimal pollution or road or air pollution on the ground? And I think as we come out of this, I think those are some other key questions that we should be able to ask ourselves is, well, what kind of environment do we want for our children, right? 
for our families as well to grow up in as well. And I would rather have a very clean and very safe environment where we're able to breathe some really great air all around, all across the globe. Right? It, it's a really, really interesting point about what happens regarding climate change policy after this. It is encouraging to hear some people saying, at least for now, that maybe it would be good if people flew a little bit less or are starting to realize that we perhaps don't need to drive as much, certainly if we live in cities. On the other hand, I kind of think back to the 2008 crisis, and even though these two are very different things at the time, a lot of businesses were cutting back on air travel and uh, conference attendance for their for their employees, and people were saying at the time that maybe this would become the new norm even after the economy recovered. And sure enough, within a few years, I mean, business travel was well above where it had been before the crisis, and it kept ticking up until the current one. So. I do kind of question the extent to which we will see lasting impacts in those sorts of areas after this. But I think maybe in areas where air quality was really bad, there could be new demands placed on governments to maintain the improved air quality we've seen. Certainly, China comes to mind with that. I've spent quite a bit of time in Beijing in the past. Los Angeles comes to mind. These places could see greater political demands in that area. So it's that'll be very interesting to watch, I think. Yeah, one thing that I can't stop thinking about during this crisis is just, it keeps on coming up in my head, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? And at the beginning, we were asked the question, you know, do we think that it's going to go back to the status quo? Do we think we're going to be living in a fundamentally different world after COVID-19 is over? And to be honest, like, I hope that things don't go back to normal. Do you know what I mean? Like, not for everything, but through this crisis, we've seen amazing things happen, like the transition to telemedicine, right? We're not seeing ERs lined up out the door with people who probably shouldn't be there and we're not able to triage care appropriately. Like that transition to telemedicine is going to be great if we can keep that going in the future. I love how workplaces are investing in digital technologies for the people who work for them so that they can work remotely, enabling greater flexibility in their personal and professional lives to be able to work from home and helping address things like less commuting and redu reductions in uh, pollution and stuff like that, right? And so what I keep on thinking about through this whole thing is the policy and spending choices that we make during this crisis will lay the foundation for like, I'm not necessarily thinking of it as the new normal, it's like the next normal. On that point, so you are all the minister of, got to think of something pithy, but I, maybe the new economy is overused. So I'll stick to you are the minister of the reopening. What <laughs> will you do with a 500 million budget at your discretion to make the new normal much improved? You know, I would have to say that I would probably spend my $500 million in stimulus spending on the digital transformation of our healthcare system. You know, this is something that has been in the works for many, many years, but the fact that I still go into my doctor's office and they pick up my paper file from the bookshelf and my entire health history is in handwritten note, it really grinds my gears. So I would love to see the adoption of electronic health records, integrated hospital networks that can share information with each other, moving to more pers like having access to my healthcare data such that I can do a better job of managing my own 
own health because I have access to that information. So I would spend my $500 million stimulating that kind of transformation in our healthcare system because I think we need to figure that out before the baby boomers start coming. I think for on my part, uh, $500 million would be nowhere near uh, enough to address this. So I begin with that caveat. <laughs> I think we, we could see some really sound, improved urban planning coming out of this, which would be really great to restore sensible density, not very high density, not very low density to a lot of cities. I think if we could reimagine cities to some degree with more public transportation, less reliance on cars, uh, going back to the points made about clean air and uh, less reliance on oil coming out of this, I think that would go a long way toward not only fighting climate change, but also keeping people healthier, improving people's lifestyles and the way that we work and would fit in nicely with all the other points that we've made about telecommuting and all the rest of it. So I would want to see uh, greatly improved urban planning if I had $500 million with the world of options and opportunities left to me, I, I think I would actually spend it on education. And the reason I would do that is this pandemic has really highlighted the importance of individuals who are in critical services and individuals in particular areas of the economy, especially in STEM when it comes to you know pharmacies and scientists who are working on identifying the genetic nature of the virus and you know how it's spreading. And this brain capital is so important and not just to like pandemics, but in terms of many different black swan events or stressors that could impact our worlds. So for me, I would invest it on the next generation and making sure we have those brains coming out and helping us with the future as well. Putting in some money into data collection within the healthcare system of how it's collecting data, um, especially from communities of color, marginalized communities, but then also gender communities as well. How are you collecting that information in order to best serve them as well? And also being able on the education front, I think if we're still talking on that front as well, is that we tend to have a lot of new Canadians who have come in with skill sets as well. And how best can we reskill a lot of these Canadians as well? Or how do we get them? Because we had, a sh I think New York was one example where there was a shortage of doctors and they were calling doctors from all around. But what happens when your doctor is, is actually a, either your taxi driver or your Uber driver? I think how can we best help reskill a lot of new Canadians? People already have those skill sets and are ready to go in order to transition them effectively. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Eddie. And I think that's alluding to where I would invest the $500 million. It wouldn't be in a particular industry or sector per se, but it is on this issue of accessibility and making some of these spaces more accessible, including using more equitable data collection to inform policies. Even the access to clean water is a huge issue. I know there are a lot of communities even across Canada that don't have access to clean water. So investing in that as the most basic that's needed in the middle of a crisis. And I don't think this is going to be the last crisis that we're going to be experiencing. So I think we have to prepare our societies and communities to become more resilient. And I think making those investments in that resilience is really critical as we face climate crises, for example, and other crises. So I, if I were to label it, then I would talk about the investments being made in the resilience and the accessibility factors. For me, it would be focused on the ICT infrastructure. Um, you're seeing clear gaps in a country like Canada, which shouldn't be the case, where rural communities are vastly underserviced by being connected to the modern economy. And I think case in point, take for instance, a company like Shopify. Shopify chose to put its roots in Ottawa. Ottawa is not by all means considered the tech capital of the world. And yet now this company is the second most valuable stock on the TSX in Canada. 
beating out many banks, beating out companies that are hundreds of years old. And my challenge would be if places like Ottawa could pop up in Halifax, in Regina, in Moose Jaw, in different parts of the country all, all around, you could change things in terms of the capacity shortages that you have right now. And I think on that note, we will wrap this chat up.